Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. everything with the beauty of the music, the soul of the music, the emotion of the music, the beauty of the of the surroundings, you know, and just the mountain scenery and quaint little cabins with, you know, smoke coming out of the chimney and just that, there's a lot of beautiful artwork. There's a... Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachia. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in Eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachian Meets World. We are back. It's Will. And Neil. What up, bro? What's going on? The local campaigning going on in my neck of the woods. Yeah, I don't think the listeners know much about that. How's that, how's that going for you? Oh, uh, no. Uh, all my Laurel County peeps, hopefully, hopefully they're listening. Neil Warren for PVA. Can I say that on here? I think so. Yeah, uh, sure. Oh, okay. I guess since it's our podcast, I can say whatever I want, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, man, it's going well. Going well. Doing what I can. We'll see what happens. Small town politics, you know? Yeah. Who would have thunk it? It's the way of the world. Well, good luck with that. Wednesday. I know you saw this coming probably from the time I was, what, six years old? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When's the uh, <laughs> primary? When's the election? May 17th. May 17th. All right. We'll definitely have an update May 17th. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe, or maybe not. If, you, if there's not an update, y'all don't be asking questions, okay? <laughs> the other thing, Will, I meant to tell you, too, you know, in this political season for me, I've been going to lots of events, and I, I went last night to an event, and I went to uh, to put my brand-new Appalachian Museum lapel pin on my sport coat. Nice! And I was so appreciative of my big brother buying it for me while he was at the Appalachian Museum. When I took it off and went to put it on my jacket, it broke, bro. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Oh. So I just had I just had the face of it and the back of it completely broke off. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can't wear it, but maybe next trip I'll get a replacement. Speaking of not an election, but an award, the Appy Awards were last weekend. Do you know, you know about the Appy Awards? No, I got to be honest, I don't. You know, hopefully we don't revisit my Oscar performance. Well, uh, they are like the Oscars <laughs> of Appalachia. So oh man, they are the Appalachian Arts and Entertainment awards they're a pretty big deal for all of appalachia the 13 states it took place over in prestonsburg at the mountain arts center this past weekend and the appy awards they celebrate art in all its forms and recognize the artists throughout the appalachian region we had to have some winners on the show uh, i think uh app harvest jonathan at least jonathan webb. webb i knew i know won an award but there are a lot of winners. There was the best podcast. We're going to have to try to get nominated next year for that. See how that turns see, out. See what our listening base can do for that, man. How do we How do we get there? I'd love to. It'd be awesome. We'll figure it out next year. We'll have to We'll have to get nominated, and then we'll have people have to vote. So we'll see how it goes. I, it's just a really cool event for the Appalachian region. I think people go all out for it. It's a really cool weekend celebrating the arts, which are an important part of Appalachia. In the world, for sure. Hopefully nobody got slapped. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping not. I don't know. We'll have to attend yeah. next year. We don't do that. That only happens in Hollywood. Anyway, moving on. I, I did I actually have a couple of highlights for our podcast. Since we didn't win an award, we were featured by the Redevelopment Institute last week. They posted it on their right. website. The Redevelopment Institute 
kind of a knowledge center. They focus on rebuilding America and promoting the best practices, education, and technical assistance throughout the country. They really focus on solutions that lead to reinvestments in underinvested communities. But as part of that, they have a podcast themselves and they featured Appalachian Meets World. They interviewed me for the podcast. Want to yeah. hear that? They, they wrote up a little they article. Missed the best part. What's that? They missed the best part. You? <laughs> exactly. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> You weren't available. You weren't in. available. I usually get in on those interviews, but, you know, time restraint right about now. I just do want to say that and highlight the Redevelopment Institute. If you want to check them out, the redevelopmentinstitute.org, and you can see an article written about us. just talks about why we do the podcast and also the actual podcast episode that we talk about Appalachian Meets World. Awesome. Um, also, we are going to be on a webinar from the International Economic Development Council is doing a webinar April 21st from 2.30 to 4. It's on using multimedia as a showcasing tool. And they asked us to be part of the webinar to talk about Appalachia Meets World and how we utilize the multimedia platform of podcasting to promote an entire region, which is Appalachia. So I think that's Looking pretty, forward to that. pretty cool as well. Uh, you, you might want to drive down to Appalachia so you can have good internet service for that one. <laughs> no doubt. I'll actually <laughs> will be partnering with the Holler Creative. Kevin Flora from the Holler Creative will be on it with me at the Holler Creative. They've partnered with SOAR. They partnered with L81 and Kentucky Wildlands to do Explore Appalachia. I don't know if you've ever checked that out, but Explore Appalachia. Mm -hmm. It's a really cool initiative partnership by that co collaboration that they uh, use video, video production to promote Appalachia, to promote Eastern Kentucky. Looking forward to that. That'll be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we talked about the Appy Awards and they kind of are in line with art and celebrating art and kind of what this episode is about. This is our follow-up Disney episode. You know how we talked about we were going to get Barry Cook from Disney uh -huh. that wrote the yep. original My Peoples. We, we talked about getting him on here. We got him. Yeah. We got old Barry and you know I'm going to press him. I'm going to press. I'm going to ask. Bring it back, Barry. Bring it back. That's right. I'm, I'm, I'm super excited pumped to have him on looking forward to the interview Me too. as part of that you know we did talk about my peoples in that last disney episode but you know we talked about dolly being part of it dolly Parton. Mm -hmm. one other thing i haven't <laughs> told you guess what Keep i did going. guess what i purchased my first purchase ever <laughs> well come out that's a lie your first purchase Okay, of this particular product. <laughs> you bought Dollywood season tickets. <laughs> no, no, I wish. I wish I was close <laughs> enough. Wish I was close enough. But I purchased my first NFT. Oh, no. Did you really? I did, yeah. This is no lie. I purchased my first NFT, and guess what it was? A picture of Dolly. A picture of Dolly. Yeah. I know what dad's getting for Christmas. So Dolly, <laughs> uh, I guess she did South by Southwest this year for the first time ever she performed. They have this website. It's, it's Welcome to Dollyverse. And as part of that, she released, I don't know, three or four different types of NFTs. And one of them is a commemorative poster, which I purchased. Like it might be the That's first awesome. NFT and the last NFT that I purchased, but I couldn't, I couldn't pass it. <laughs> That's awesome, man. I might have to get on and see if there's any left. Limited edition, I'm assuming. Limited edition, but I think there are quite a few left. <laughs> I still don't know how the whole <laughs> NFT game works, but figuring it yeah, out. Yeah, we're trying to figure it out. Shout out to Heather Parody over at NFT for Dummies. She was on. Uh, Y'all should keep listening to her. Definitely. Hey, Will, I did I did want to mention, uh, before we get going too far along here, do you have an app business of the week for me? Well, Neil, yeah, I do. I have a couple of app business this week, and they are in line with the guests that we have this week. We talked about having Barry Cook on a special guest which I'm super excited about because it's a follow-up to our Disney episode where we talked about getting a Disney animated movie or just an animated movie made with the backdrop of Appalachia or about Appalachia. So 
In line with that, the two app bizzes that I have, there's an app biz in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania, in Appalachia, part of Pennsylvania. It's called Pat- Patch Animation. It was founded in 2020. It's a remote full service animation studio founded by a few storytellers who have actually worked at companies like Disney, like Lucasfilms, like Marvel. They made their first short film just this past year. I think it was in production. I think it's still in production and hasn't actually been released, but it's called Statch. It's about an unlikely duo of an old man and a hermit crab whose lives collide as they navigate their own trials and tribulations while dealing with grief they each have experienced. So I think it's just a cool example of how these animation studios, of how animation doesn't have to reside outside of Appalachia. You know, we can have these studios within Appalachia. We can be just as good, just as big as these other studios. Have our kids know about them as even like role models. And as part of that, a program in Pennsylvania, it's called Startup Alleghenies. I want to give them a shout out. It's a free program that connects existing and potential entrepreneurs with experienced coaches to help them navigate a vast network network of partners. Actually, Started Up Allegheny's was launched with a power grant, which we have mentioned before, that was given through the Appalachian Regional Commission or the ARC. They got support through the power grant to start up this Startup Allegheny's and Patch Animation went through their program, the free program, to help them start up their animated animation studio. So I think it's a really cool story and connection there. It's in line with what we're talking about tonight. And as we mentioned, it's important for even the youth in Appalachia to understand that if you want to get into animation, if you want to get into the creative arts, you don't have to move outside of Appalachia to start your own company. You can start it right here. And as part of that, talking about the youth, the other organization that I wanted to talk about, I wanted to talk about it because it has a deadline coming up. It's called the Appalachian Media Institute. And the Appalachian Media Institute, it was it actually started back in 1988, but it is part of Apple Shop, which is in Whitesburg, Kentucky, which we've talked about a number of times on here. But it provides opportunity for young people from central Appalachia to explore their communities and develop their creative skills through arts and media. So really, it's, it's a eight-week summer documentary institute. It takes up to 12 applicants, 12 youth applicants that range in age from 14 to 22. You have to apply. You have to get accepted. It's an eight-week program. It utilizes documentary storytelling as a means to explore, produce, and share youth-led visions for Central Appalachia's future. Like I said, they've been doing it since 1988, and they have produced a number of not only documentaries, but award-winning documentaries that have been recognized all over the country. I think it's an awesome program for the youth of our region to take part in, especially if they're interested in the arts, if they're interested in documentary filmmaking, if they're interested in learning more about the Appalachian heritage, the Appalachian culture, and the issues that we are faced with every day in Appalachia. So I wanted to give them a shout out. It's an incredible thing what that they're doing, that they have been doing for a number of years. If you want to check that out, the actual deadline to apply is April 29th of this year. So if you know somebody between the ages of 14 and 22 that interested in the arts, interested in documentary filmmaking, and is from Central Appalachia, have them check out the Appalachia Media Institute. Oh man, Will, Will, you're right on point tonight. Great companies, great organizations. Everybody should check them out. <clears throat> well, listen, man, I'm so excited to have Barry Cook on. I'm looking forward to asking him questions and 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 really what an honor it is for us to have him on this show. So uh, without further ado, let's, let's bring him on. All right, let's get after it. Today, we have an 
extremely special guest, Mr. Barry Cook. If you listen to any of our episodes, if you listen to the Disney episode, then you heard us mention Mr. Cook on that episode and the story that he wrote that was based in Appalachia. Barry Cook is a director, a writer, a producer, and a 40-year veteran of the film and animation industry. He has worked for Hanna-Barbera, for Disney, among other corporations, and made and worked on a number of animated films over his career, including some that you may have heard of, The Smurfs, Tron, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin, just to name a few. He has also directed a number of animated shorts for Disney, but is probably best known for directing or co-directing Arthur Christmas, Walking with Dinosaurs, and Mulan. Like I said, the reason we're having him on the show is because he wrote actually it was greenlighted the short story my peoples which is what we want to talk about today which was based in appalachia barry we just want to thank you for being on the show we greatly appreciate your time hello yeah thanks great to be here appreciate the invite this is a question we ask all our guests so we have to ask you like most appalachian families our family is big on tradition one of the traditions we have we have appetizers at the holidays we usually have more appetizers than than the (laughs) actual meal so we wanted to ask you uh, do you have a favorite appetizer or just a absolutely my mom used to make these little sausage balls Oh, yeah, yes. those, they've got sausage and, you know, Tennessee pride sausage and they're yep. rolled up with like Bisquick and they've got yeah. cheddar cheese ground up in them and they roll up. And my dad used to be the ball roller. <laughs> that's, that's Neil's favorite. My I favorite. love those things. And it's like, and now my daughter makes them traditionally from my mom's recipe. I mean, that's, yeah, that's an easy one for me. I love those. I mean, that's more yeah. like a meal. You keep popping those things and you're not ready for dinner, you know. Exactly what I was getting ready to say. I, I usually fill myself up with sausage sausage balls before we ever get started. <laughs> yeah, sausage balls and some sweet tea, but I'm off the sweet tea now. I have to have unsweet tea. I just too much sugar. My teeth were falling out. Stay away from the sugar, but stick to the sausage balls. Great. One great or the other. <laughs> I love it. I love it. We want to just dive right into my peoples in the beginning. But first I want to I want to read a quote that I read from you. I think it was around the time that either trying to produce my peoples or shortly after it got canceled. But the quote was more than any other project I poured my soul into it. I opened myself up to all the things I love, the culture I grew up in, the music I still to this day love dearly. It was all a part of that. It was very personal for me as a filmmaker. I just wanted to read that and just ask you about my peoples and what it was all about, how it got started, how you came to write it, maybe a little bit about where you're from. Well, originally I was born in Nashville, Tennessee. I didn't really get into bluegrass music. I'm a huge fan of bluegrass music. I'm an amateur fiddle player and mandolin player. I can never do it professionally. I'm not good enough for that, but I love the music. I love playing. I'm supposed to go to a jam session tomorrow morning down here. But yeah, my people's, I mean, a lot of it was the music, the music I wanted to sort of like, you know, get out in the world. And at that time, we were very fortunate that the Coen brothers had made Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So Hollywood executives actually knew what bluegrass music sounded like and old mountain music. You know, they really, oh, before the Coen Brothers and T-Bone Burnett and his musical genius behind that film, bluegrass music or any music in that niche wouldn't have gotten any traction whatsoever. It was just sort of, uh, you know, a sort of a good time and a good opportunity, at least we felt at the time. I think ultimately the project, at least the reasons I was given, it was a little too colloquial, they said, you know, a little too regional, a little too small uh, for what they felt, you know, they want to do these big, more international type stories and stuff. They ended up doing Chicken Little and I don't know how that really fits in. But for me, it was like the music. And and I fell in love with the music when I was in high school. I had some buddies and we used to make films, Super 8 films, not animation, just Super 8 films. And we would just mimic stuff off of TV. We'd do like, almost like uh, send-ups of like Marcus Welby, MD. It was a TV show in the 70s. It was about a doctor or something, right? Yeah. And we called ours Joseph Wobbly, MD, (laughs) you know, and he was a bad doctor, you know. (laughs) And it was just corny stuff, you know, and just fun. But we just had fun shooting and never 
everything. And then uh, some of the films, we had uh, a chase scene or something like that. And one of my friends says, oh, my dad's got this great collection of bluegrass albums. We could use this like in Bonnie and Clyde. And that had come out in the 70s and had used uh, Flatten Scruggs' Foggy Mountain Breakdown in that film. Um, we could use some of this bluegrass music for a chase scene. And one album that just we just latched onto was uh, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, which was the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band album that they recorded in Nashville with a lot of great country and bluegrass players. And Vassar Clements, he was the fiddle player on that album. I mean, I heard that fiddle and I was just like, I, I mean, I've heard fiddles. I've heard, I'd been to the Grand Ole Opry as a kid, you know, and, but, but this was like, wow, what's he doing? You know, this guy just had some. But anyway, so we used some of that music and it was like, you know, we didn't use it with permission and we only showed it at like, you know, we'd show somebody's backyard on the big screen, our little homemade movie, right? So it wasn't, <laughs> like, it wasn't like going to the box office, but, you know, we charged people a dollar to come see the movies and sometimes we'd have like 50 people turn out. So nice sometimes, start cover, young. You know, sometimes it would cover our budget, you know, because the budgets were pretty slim. But anyway, that was a lot of fun. But I fell in love with bluegrass music then. And, and then I think I've always had a propensity for ghost stories. The first movie I ever made, I was 10 years old. I made a three minute, 20 second version of Dickens' Christmas Carol. The reason it was three minutes and 20, that's how long a roll of Super 8 film lasts. <laughs> yeah. Three minutes and 20 seconds. Yeah. And, uh, you know, no editing. It was just like in the camera. And that, and that, that's four ghosts. There's four ghosts in that story. I mean, the storytelling thing, and you know what it's like uh, where you live. Storytelling, at least, and maybe uh, maybe a lot of it's just gossip, but storytelling is just part of the culture. Absolutely. I mean, if you come back from a day at Walmart, you've got stories to tell, and you're always embellishing. And the next time you tell it, you're adding more to it, and you're doing this. So storytelling just sort of was a thing I grew up with. And when I was a little kid, even before I started making film, I'd be at my grandmother's house, and her friends would be over, and they would be talking. And the other kids, cousins, brothers and sisters would be out playing in the yard. I was hiding behind the sofa while these old ladies told stories and just listening to these stories. And I was just fascinated, you know, and just just really captured by, I don't know, a real art form of storytelling that was just a real natural thing for me growing up. I've just stayed with that and I just keep trying to tell stories on film. And that's my and when life. You, when you originally wrote My Peoples, it was important for you to base it in Appalachia? Well, it was because I wanted to, uh, you know, I'm not really from Appalachia. I'm more, you know, from Middle Tennessee, but the scenery, the beauty, that's the roots of the music, you know, that became country and bluegrass music, you know, came from the Irish-Scottish influences that, you know, where people settled there. Uh, my family goes back to Tennessee, sort of Eastern Tennessee, as far back as 1812. So they were early settlers. That was part of it. And, and, and the idea that the main character in the story, he was a based on an old guy that lived in West Virginia, and I can't remember his name, but he was just a front porch fiddler. But he made these strange little, almost like puppets. They were like these little people. And he hung up on strings and he had a foot pedal. So he'd play his music and these things would sort of dance on his front porch. And uh, and I saw pictures of it. I saw a video of that. It's like, wow, this intrigued me. I'm sorry, I can't remember his name right now, but his puppets or his dolls are at uh, one of the universities in West Virginia now in their, in their archives somewhere. So he's an important folk artist. I also was getting really interested in, in folk art at the time and folk art of that region. And I've collected quite a few pieces. I sort of wish you could see some, but you know, I collected a lot of folk art and he was, so he was a folk artist. I mean, he was, that's what the guy, the main guy in the story was. And he lived in a little cabin and he lived all alone. And then part of the story was sort of a takeoff on Romeo and Juliet. Maybe you could say Hatfield McCoy, but I yeah. didn't get into that territory so much. It was, but it was the two families that didn't get along very well. The story was more like, you know, it's two, two star-crossed lovers that were never meant to be together from two families that didn't like each other. He had made a special, I got it right here, he had made a special doll for her as a gift, sort of oh, that's like awesome. a, a love gift, you know. That's what the that's what the character looked like that was going to be in the film. That was the, the, the final version of the, of the approved version of the character. My good old friend and phenomenal uh, art director, Rick Sluter, sculpted this after the show was shut down, just gave it to me as a gift. Yeah, that's amazing. You know? And of course, we had lined up uh, some talent. You know, Dolly Parton was going to do a voice. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. You had Dolly, you had Ashley Judd, Travis Tritt, Lou Rawls, Lily Tomlin, Gene Smart, a huge Ricky Skaggs. Ricky Skaggs was writing music. He wrote a song called Appalachian 
Joy, which is on his album. I think it's on Brand New Strings album. Great instrumental. Dolly um, wrote some songs, right? She wrote a bunch of songs, and uh, and some of those have been released on some of her albums. One called Better Day, I remember. I think there's two or three others that she's released as well. So what was great about that is the deal that was made with the musical artists on that film was that you know any songs they wrote if they weren't used in the movie would go back to them to their publishing company. So Disney didn't own them outright, which was great. Just so our listeners know, this movie actually got green-lighted. You lined up and were starting the production process before it got canceled, right? Yeah, yeah, we, we were. And and it was uh, it was heartbreaking when they, you know, and there was a lot of other things going on. You know, 9-11 had happened in 2001. A lot of corporations were sort of figuring, well, where's our next move here? Disney contracted its, and we were transitioning from 2D animation into CG animation, computer graphics animation and this film was a combination of both techniques and it was something that I'd always been I'd always been experiment I'd experimented with at Disney on a short film called Off His Rockers this little character this horse character and he was a CG character and then the boy in the story was hand drawn and we found a way to sort of combine these two mediums techniques together you know so the new technology was great to me I, I worked as an effects analyst animator on Tron, the original Tron. I was on the ground floor of computer generated graphics and film. And I was an early adopter and an early experimenter. And maybe, I don't know if you could call me a pioneer, probably not, that'd be going too far. But I, I was one of the, you know, I was one of the first artists in Hollywood working with that type of stuff. And uh, and I wanted to take it further, but I still wanted to blend mediums. And I think a lot of factors go into deciding, well, this is not the right film to make right now, you know, and that's a corporate judgment and that's great. That's fine. That's what they do. But part of it was the film I was going to make was was technically a little bit complex for the moment. It was easier to sort of make a whole CG film, although it was Disney feature animation's first full CG film, Chicken Little. It was sort of easier to say, let's put all of our eggs in the CG basket and let's go ahead and make that first CG film instead of doing one that has blending of techniques and yeah. stuff. So, you know, that might've been one reason too, but we had maybe over 3000 employees worldwide in the feature animation division of the studio at that time, a studio in Australia, a studio in Tokyo, a studio in Paris, France, and a studio in Orlando, Florida. Florida, which is where I was working at the time. I had worked in Burbank for years before that. Uh, and then, of course, their main studio. So basically, they just shut down all their satellite locations, consolidated back to Burbank with about 400, 400 employees or something out of 3,000. It was just a big time of change in the company. So it wasn't so much, there were a lot of films getting made and mine just did. It was like, there was a lot of things happening that were sort of way outside of, you know, yeah. my control, certainly. But And you, you know, you mentioned, oh, brother, where are now and you know there's a lot of cultural hits coming out from Disney right now like Encanto, Soul you know Moana came out, Big Hero 6 Coco, you think there's a, an appetite for an Appalachian based film currently? You know it's funny because this project is well known in the animation industry, everybody knows about it you know but yeah, because it was a pretty small industry at the time but I have no doubt that this film would have been a huge hit, I have no doubt it would have been just classic amazing movie, I know know it would have been all that. I know it would have been very, very popular. This was pre-Dollywood. I mean, this was pre-Dolly. Dollywood was already, Dolly already had Dollywood, but yeah, it was in its earlier days for sure. Yeah. And of course, you know, she's more uh, vital and more relevant now than she's ever been. You know, she's just <laughs> a wonderful person. And the chance I had to work with her was just a highlight of my career really it was great. And, it, you know, it was not much, but get a couple of recording sessions in and, and she was just amazing to work with and to be around. And the same with Ricky Skaggs, Marty Stewart, so gracious, you know, invited me to his house and I sort of helped him write a song one afternoon, you know, gave him some ideas for what we're looking for. And, and there's some stories there too. He handed me a guitar and he said, you can play this one. He said, you know whose guitar that used to be? I said, no. He said, that guitar was uh, owned by Hank Williams. No way. Wow. I'm like, I can't hold this. Yeah. <laughs> you take it back. He said, oh, I got it from Johnny Cash. He's like, I got it from Johnny. <laughs> And uh, he sold it to me. <laughs> Marty, I said, you're blowing my mind right now, you know, but just moments like that were like such, such generosity. And I knew that from the bluegrass community and the Nashville country music community. They're just, I mean, as a whole, just such a giving, loving and creative group of people. And they were just, they were all in and they were excited about it too. So I'm sure there was some more, plenty of disappointment to, to go around. And, uh, but uh, yeah, I think it would have been a great 
film and you so know Barry, what could we do as Appalachians who do we need to beg or who do we need to talk to <laughs> to try to make an Appalachian movie happen and I will also say that Will and I would love to donate our tagline for our podcast of always Appalachian to the movie there you go well I don't know you know it's like yeah to do it with the right spirit and then the right you know for me it was like I wasn't you know in that story it was like yeah there were some interesting characters in the story and but to me that's what I grew up around I had some really interesting characters in my extended family and people I knew yeah. lived around and stuff like that so you know certainly treating everything with the beauty of the music the soul of the music the emotion of the music the beauty of the of the surroundings you know and just the mountain scenery and quaint little cabins with you know smoke coming out of the chimney and just that there's a lot of beautiful artwork there's a I don't know if you're videoing this for later but there's a book called Disney Lost and Found you know this is the this is the only place you can get any of my peoples oh yeah it's a, little oh. Coffee table, it's a little coffee table book that Disney put out I don't know if you've seen it before no I haven't that's awesome you gotta have it but this is about movies that did not get made at Disney that's what the book's about cool but the last third of the book is about uh, my peoples. Yeah, uh, yeah. Some just some beautiful artwork. Uh, artists like Hans Bacher, Peter Morley, Rick Sluter, Tom Enriquez. You know, character design drawings. But yeah, I think this is this book's available probably anywhere you can find books, Amazon or whatever. You could probably find it. Disney Lost and Found. But it's worth having. Charles Solomon wrote the book, and he's a you know great uh, animation historian and movie historian, uh, writer and film critic in L.A. You made a comment a minute a, a few minutes ago that just just made me laugh. To make a movie in Appalachia, you would. Have have to go no further than Walmart. You, you mentioned earlier, just go to Walmart and listen to people's stories. What, <laughs> what a thrilling story that would be, <laughs> just going to Walmart in Appalachia. So when you said that earlier, I, I, I was internally dying. <laughs> I could just picture, you know, that scene and they're all throughout Appalachia. Well, I don't want to get out of Walmart. I don't want anybody to... Yeah. <laughs> I, I know uh, an animated films are pretty capital intensive. In regards to cost, in regards to time, how long would it take to make a movie from start to finish like this? Well, for Mulan, as an example, that movie, I was the first artist who was asked to start developing the film. And I was the last artist that left Technicolor Labs in Universal City after the final color grading of the film, five years later, almost five years to the day. Wow. Wow. It took to make that film. So, and then about 650 people in the middle of all that contributing to it in one way or the other. You know, artists, technicians, actors, musicians, songwriters, writers, everything. Awesome. For, for my peoples, I, I need to give a shout out to Ian Southwood, who's a writer who lives in New York. Uh, but he was helping me write uh, the screenplay for my peoples. I wrote the original short story, but Ian, Ian Southwood wrote the initial screenplay for the. I know that Disney now, you know, in the past, they've been criticized for cultural appropriation or things like that. They've started the Stories Matters platform. I didn't know if, when you were writing or, or when you were collaborating in writing, if you reached out to anyone that was currently living in the region just to give, get some type of perspective. I know, you, I think you said you traveled throughout the region. We made, we made two big trips up there, sort of cultural research trips. And we had done the same in Mulan. We went to China and we hung out with people and listened to their stories about the story we were going to tell and we saw the folk art and we talked to people and, and and visited music venues you know in the mountains and stuff small music venues and everything and we always you know it was it was just part of the it was part of the job I, it is with any movie to, to yeah. do your do your research and dig in and really try to find because you find those things that are very authentic and they can be stranger than fiction and they can be more interesting and more captivating for the real deal i think that's incredibly important especially with a marginalized region or society. Mm -hmm. I was just going to ask, you worked on a lot of different movies, a lot of different characters. Would would you say that your Appalachian upbringing played any type of role with within you as you think about those characters or just your upbringing that uh, caused you to, to put that into a story? Well, my upbringing was a little maybe unique in that my dad, my father was an artist, a fine okay. painter, and he painted a lot of barns and he did a 
lot of portraits of people around Middle Tennessee. He would paint a lot of old structures and a lot of old houses and a lot of old barns and just sort of rural scenic paintings and settings and stuff. And he made his living doing that from the time I was about 13 years old until the day he died. And he also taught painting and art and in his later years, well, pretty much throughout his career off and on. So a part of that was, you know, bringing what everything he taught me because I'm sort of getting maybe a little away from the question a little bit, but something that aggravates me in school, especially public school and maybe all school, you know, art isn't taught as a serious subject. Art is sort of an elective and a lot of guys in high school would just take it to get out of another class, right? It would just be a right. place to hang out. And, and usually the art teachers were sincere, but they really didn't get the support of like, this is important for a person's development. This is important for a person's mind. This is important. This is how we express ourselves as people through our art, through our music. This is what makes us want to live. <laughs> and breathe, you know, it's the art. And uh, around our dinner table, which was strange maybe in middle Tennessee, but, you know, our conversations at night, we were talking about Monet and Van Gogh and Picasso. And we were talking about art and artists all the time and movies cool. and film and everything else. And that's just sort of, that was a conversation in our house, you know, painters. How did he do that? How did she do that? What was that? Uh, you know, wow. Matisse, what, what was he thinking? And so I think it was a little bit unusual, but I think all of that sort of brought me into the ability to draw, which pretty well. So that's sort of how I got into animation because my skill set was more in being able to draw and just draw just about anything that needed to be drawn, which at that time, an entry-level position in the animation industry, you had to draw whatever they threw at you. You know, yeah. drawing a scrappy dude today. Oh, you're drawing a Super Friends today. Oh, you're drawing a, the new Fred and Barney show tomorrow and you know it's like whatever they threw in front of you you had to draw it right you had to do drawings that would fit in with the rest of the show so I think that's a perfect analogy of most Appalachians who grow up around the dinner table with their dad or their family who influences them and for you it's been a huge influence on on your life that background and it's taken you all over the world to work on lots of different things because of that strong, rooted Appalachian, if you will, kind of upbringing. That's perfect. And all of our listeners can relate to that. Yeah. And I, I'm glad you brought up the school scenario. My daughter, she's 10. She doesn't play a lot of sports. But if you ask her what she wants to do when she grows up, it's art, theater and art. That's all she wants to do. And that's all she has a, a hunger for. And that's fantastic. And I think a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of parents are like, oh, you don't want to be an artist, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but and my dad I mean my dad was like the only artist we knew of in our town we lived in Goodlettsville Tennessee which yeah. is just a suburb of Nashville and uh, and part of it was pretty rural at the time the whole population of the town when I lived there was 8,000 people when I grew up in high school graduating class was 153 so pretty small and then we lived out in the country at the time you know we'd go in the barbershop and the farmers and guys around would sort of make fun of my dad a little bit about oh well the rest of us are working today what are you doing today painting a picture <laughs> like you know they tease him a bit you know it's like but you know it's really hard work and he would be like well you would take it in stride but anyway back to a lot of people so many parents approach me whether it's at church whether it's at whatever at the ball field with one of my grandkids or whatever oh uh you know my my nephew wants to get into animation into art but i just think he should do something more sensible you know what's that's going to be able to pay the bills and i'm like look look around you everything that god didn't make somebody else designed it. This computer, <laughs> this car, there's design and so many things. There's design and designing products and designing things. There's so many jobs in art. I mean, just I mean, architects, think of the buildings, every building we're sitting in, somebody had to draw up plans for it. Yeah. And that's an art form. And it's like, but so I really encourage, you know, when I, when I have kids come to me, I want to be a filmmaker. I'm like, you should do that. Mm -hmm. We've talked about it before on our show of things that we didn't learn in Appalachia schools growing up. And, you know, we need to have those role models in schools like the Barry Cooks to, to see those possibilities. Yeah, I've really, I mean, to me, right now, sort of in my career, uh, you know, sort of where I'm at now, it's like, I, I do mentor a lot of younger artists and filmmakers. Uh, we had a young guy out here a couple of months ago, he shot a little short film here on our on our little ranch. My wife has a boarding stable for horses and my, she and my daughter run. And so we've got quite a bit of property here. And, and so we've got these woods back here, these big old oak trees with the Spanish moss hanging off and stuff. So he, it was a perfect setting for this little 
action thing he wanted to shoot. And he was a 16-year-old kid, but really ambitious and does a lot of visual effects work, you know, using these, you know, the latest software and stuff. So, you know, his dad approached me and said, you know, my son's really crazy for this filmmaking stuff and could you help him in any way? And so I, I've just sort of been mentoring him, you know, and letting him use the place if he wants to shoot some stuff. And, nice. you know, it's worked out great. And then I've got another young editor, four years in film school, and he's working at, you know, serving chicken and waffles down the road here. And he's just edited some behind the scenes footage for me for this uh, audio play that I've been uh, working on for the last year. I think that's a perfect segue into Studio PB&J. Can you talk about that yeah. and your current work? I know you have two things yeah. that are supposed to be coming out in the fall. Well, uh, we don't think the children's book's going to come out in the fall, but the uh, the audio play is going to come out. And we're not sure exactly where yet. Our hope is that we'll have a product, a novella, which is a paperback sort of print on demand version available on Amazon. And then uh, once it's on Amazon, then we can transition to getting it platformed to Audible. And that's so, called The Happy Place? The Happy Place, yeah. And it's a ghost story also. <laughs> I love ghost stories. And, this yeah, is there you go. Too, and it's set in 1969 in Tennessee. And it's more like a, the, originally I wrote it as a short story, just like I did with my peoples, but this was written as a short story shortly after my dad died about four years ago. And it was just a cathartic writing. I just wanted to get, you know, emotions, things down. And so the story is sort of about life and death. And it's about sort of war and peace in a way too. Two of the characters, two of the main characters in the story, the two main characters are both Vietnam War veterans. And it's set in 1969. And both have just recently come home from the war. And one of them has come home very bitter and very enraged and not quite right and he's been drinking a lot and a lot of problems and the other one has come home with it behind him and he's more or less a hippie <laughs> you know and he loves music and he's hitchhiking he's on his way to the Woodstock Festival and that summer of 1969 was a unique time and I was only 10 years old at the time but it was a unique time if you think about men landed on the moon in July of 1969 the Woodstock Festival was in August of 1969 and the man and murders or the Tate LaBianca murders in LA were also in uh, August of 1969. That little couple of months there was like an amazing time in the history of the world, really. And this taps into that time in a really small way. And I was trying to do, I have, I don't know, you call it a bucket list thing or whatever. I want to make an independent live action feature film, a small film, you know, just a few players in a small location. So when I wrote this into a screenplay, I wrote it with that in mind. Most of the action takes place in one house with three characters. And there's a couple of other incidental scenes on, you know, beginning and end that, you know, a little cafe, coffee shop scene and, and a couple of other small scenes. But I was trying to do something that was, we would call in Hollywood speak, we call a contained screenplay. A lot of low budget horror movies are that way. They're very contained screenplays. It's all in a haunted house or, you know, even in a modern house, all shot with security cameras or something. So the idea was to do a very contained screenplay, something that would be manageable in terms of time and budget to do independently. So uh, I still want to do that. And I'm not sure the happy place will end up being that. But in the meanwhile, COVID happened and everything. And I said, yeah. let's just do it as an audio play for now, like an old time radio play. I don't mean old time in a bad way. I just mean, it's just audio. There's no picture. You're just listening to the story unfold. And the narrator, the main character is telling the story and the story of what happened to him and how he became a ghost. My son's been helping me with it. We've just set up a website for Studio PB&J. It's studiopbj.com. And that talks about the projects a little bit on there. But we just, we've just put that up in the last few weeks, really. We'll be adding content. Uh, I just added a behind the scenes video to YouTube today. And so that's probably worth watching. If you go to, I also have another website, freshly established, but it's called BarryCookStories.com. So I'm going to start telling stories on there. I'm going to start sharing stories. I'm going to start putting posts up there, probably maybe even a vlog. I don't know what exactly I'm going to do with it. I don't know how deep I want to get into the social media game. But at the same time, uh, I want to have places where people can see this. There's a link on uh, BarryCookStories.com. It's just a picture of me right now. It's the only thing up there. But there is a link to the YouTube video that I just put up. It's got some behind the scenes footage of some of our recording sessions uh, nice. work that we did for the story. And you see some of the actors playing in it. No names, but local Nashville area actors. And one is me. I, I play a part. I play this guy character named Shorty. He told a show like this. <laughs> 
<laughs> and he comes over to the house to get rid to help get rid of the ghost. <laughs> I just made my theatrical debut this past Christmas. So if you need any Appalachian speaking people in your <laughs> <laughs> I just finished we just wrapped up all the dialogue recording for this. But you know, I might do another something with audio, you know, with audio drama, but I would call this, I guess the best description I found is an audio play. I did also want to mention, I know you didn't mention it. You said the children's book's not coming out in the fall, but it is up on that website too. And it's called Gumdrop Ghost. Another ghost story. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny. I just, I just had this idea. So I'm doing all the illustration myself and that's why it's not coming out because I just don't have time to sit down and do all the illustration. But I do have a couple of works in progress up on the website right now. I'm going to put more up and we'll put more up this summer, I hope. Uh, I hope I can get back to it real quick. It's just a little picture book story, you know, that I want to publish. And it's about a ghost that gets stuck inside of a gumdrop on Halloween night and he can't get out. And the kid that's got him almost eats him by mistake at first. It's sort of a cautionary tale in the end of it. X-ray your candy before you eat it? Is that the... the (laughs) No, it's not about that. It's about who can you trust, you know? (laughs) I got to ask this question, Barry. We ask all of our guests this question and and it's always one that, you know, I I think our listeners appreciate and kind of help understand that the area that we're from, but just whatever comes to mind, what the first thing that rolls off the tongue when I say the word Appalachia to you? Well, music for me. Spoken like a true artist. It's just a musical place. And it's not just musical because of the music that came into the place. It's music because you can just stand on a mountaintop and it's music. You know what I mean? It's everything that you're hearing and seeing and everything. It's just, you know, there's such beauty. And it's funny because I think a lot of a lot of the music of that region is still sort of misunderstood. I have friends who aren't into bluegrass music or aren't into any sort of mountain music or folk music. But whenever they hear a bluegrass song, they, they start doing <laughs> it like that, right? It's like the only thing. So they're like their first reaction to it. But there is some great, there's some great stuff. But yeah, for me, it's, for me, it's, it was about music and it was sort of all about, you know, the music in there, you know, a big part of what I wanted to share from that region was music. Also, I mean, the art, the folk art too, is just surprising and amazing because it's such honest, I mean, it's just such honest expressions of people's, let me just grab something just to show you. This was made in West Virginia, little pieces like this, you know. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, you got that in West Virginia? Yeah, I got that in West Virginia. And the chicken I got in West Virginia. Too. <laughs> nice. So awesome. it's like, this really speaks to me. You know, it's just like, I think this woman, Atkins is her last name. The art and the music and the folk art. I wanted to ask you another question that we ask everyone, Barry. Just where do you call home? What makes it unique for you? What makes it home for you? Well, we call home right now, right where I'm sitting here in Florida. And it's between two towns, Kissimmee and St. Cloud. And we moved down in this area because Disney had a studio at Disney World. You know, you got to live somewhere. And I don't like the summers here at all. They're way too hot and humid to me. And they're way too long. The winters are really beautiful here. And I tend to, I have tended to, maybe I'm, not doing as much anymore and I didn't do much during the COVID. You know, I go lots of places and I've, I've lived in, I lived in Australia for a year. I lived in Jerusalem for almost six months one summer working at an animation studio. In England, I lived for a year. In Oregon, I lived for a year. So for me, I guess, you know, right now, Florida's our home and I like it here. I, I don't really consider Nashville my home anymore. I like going back up there, but yeah, this is our home. And one reason we decided to make this our home <laughs> is uh, uh, we figured that all grandchildren will pass through Walt Disney World. <laughs> that's a, that's it was a great assumption. You know, it's like, hey, they're going to come down here eventually. Five of them live just down the path here. But yeah, so all, all the grandkids will eventually come through Disney World. So we thought it was just a good sort of home base. And we were able to afford enough land here at the time. I mean, land prices have gone up crazy here. But at the time, we got a big parcel of land here that we could never afford in Southern California. So yeah, it's been it's worked out really great for us. That's a great answer. Great perspective. It's always good to hear people's perspective to that question, whether you live in Appalachia or not. Before we let you go, we want to know how how can we get more people to know about my peoples, about Barry Cook, about this, this short story that you wrote that got greenlit that never got made. Well, I don't know if it's really important that, that the more people know about that or not. Oh, it's important. I don't really think it's... I don't think it's ever going to really happen again. I mean, the nice thing about a project like that, the artwork, all the material that was made on it, all the recordings that were made, Disney is 
very good about archiving all of that. So they've got all of that hermetically sealed. I mean, they really have it organized. A couple of years ago, I was there at their the animation research library, they call it. They have artwork going back to the first days of Disney Studios. But every project, whether it's gotten made or not, they keep all the artwork that's been done for it. So there's a treasure trove of artwork uh, just from my peoples there. Some director, some artist, some producer, somebody in the future, maybe digging through there and saying, you know, maybe we should do something with these characters. Or maybe this could be a nice little kid's show or something, or maybe it could turn into something else. Uh, so I don't know, but you know, I haven't worked for Disney since 2004. They've done fine without me, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think it's in my future that I would ever, you know, maybe work with them again on, on a project, you know, unless, you know, were, were this, you know, sort of resurrected or something. But there's always the possibility that something could be done with the property and developed into something in the future. So there's always that property, but I'm not spending any really much of my time trying to promote that idea or, or get that idea going because now it's for me, it's like, I want to tell my own, I mean, that was one of my own story. I felt like that was a story that came from my heart. Like you mentioned at the top here, but for the most part in my career, I've been telling other people's stories, you know, stories that studios come to me and say, help us tell this story. Yeah. I think I have the ability to help people tell stories better, whatever story they're telling, I can really help them make it a better story or a more compelling story to tell, no matter what it is, I think. And I so I, I do work with a lot of writers and I work with a lot of producers on projects that are in development that may never get made also, but I help them get their scripts to the next level, get their artwork, get their character designs to the next level that they need, you know, as, as they're pursuing their dreams and their, their film projects. But I've worked on a lot of other people's projects and I just feel like, you know, it's about time I just started doing some of my own projects. And they may be small, like an audio play. Uh, it's, it's you know, it's almost two hours long. So it's not a tiny project, but it's, you know, it's not a big film project or a kid's book or something, but there's something that just comes from me and just like, just trying to express myself as an artist, as an individual, and and just trying to get stuff out there and, and also get it all cataloged and get it all organized. Well, I'll tell you, me, me and Neil will still keep spreading the word of my peoples because <laughs> we are very appreciative of that work, of your work, and very appreciative of your time today. I, I can't speak for Neil, but I found this incredibly interesting to hear about all the work that you have done, aside from even my peoples. Just, well, yeah. you know, thank you for sharing. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, we'll keep in touch. Absolutely. Very much appreciate it. You, you, you have no business talking to Neil and Will, but we, we do very much appreciate it. <laughs> Uh, both your your uh, time and obviously appreciate all the wonderful things you've brought to life for people over the years well i appreciate it too and appreciate you guys for inviting me and uh hope everybody enjoys it will yo lad the little mermaid so excited and appreciative of his time for being with Will and Neil on Appalachia Meets World. I mean, I'm sure it was one of the highlights of his career, but so interesting talking to him and learning from him. And, you know, our listeners didn't get to see all the cool props that he had in front of him that he was showing us. But what an insane artist. I mean, the, the true definition of a lifelong artist that has brought his visions to life over a really super long career. I'm even more interested in Barry Cook now than I ever have been. No doubt, man. It was an, I felt like it was an incredibly, at least for me, it was an incredibly interesting interview. And on top of that, you know, he has an incredible career that, you know, that he discussed in bits and pieces. He didn't even go over, go over all of it. Just talking about my peoples and all that went into it, as proud as he was of it, it's unfortunate that it didn't get made. But the fact of the matter is, there's still stuff out there about it. You can read about it, like the book he mentioned. And it really. I was going to say, you know, I'm not a huge reader these days with all the kids we have and all the other extracurricular things we do, but I am going to get that book of all the shows or movies, I guess, that didn't make it to film that Disney has done over the years. Most interested in, in my peoples for sure, but I'm sure there's a lot of other great ones out there that, that didn't quite make it. So I can't even remember the name of it. You remember the name of that book? He just mentioned it. Lost and Found, Disney Lost and Found.
found. Disney Lost and Found. That yeah. book is going to get on my list. Um, check out the angel right on the front cover. That's the angel that Barry showed us. The angel from my peoples. Yeah, very cool. Uh, you can go to Amazon right now. Check it out. It's a clickable button. Uh, I just found it. So you can check it out on Amazon. And search it on there. Use promo code Appalachia Meets World and you'll not get a discount. Cool. I also thought it was pretty cool, you know, when he was talking about how important art was. You know, we mentioned the Appy Awards and how important it is for Appalachia to celebrate art. But also, you know, he mentioned like how important it is in school to keep arts in schools and how important it was for him and how important it should be going forward to give people that opportunity or give uh, just the chance or just to know art can lead them into this career. Just look at what Barry has done with his art career. I mean, it's incredible Mm -hmm. and it's something that should be looked at just as much as STEM. Oh, absolutely. I would encourage all you parents out there of of small children, young children, take a moment, take it not a week and uh, have some of those discussions at your dinner table that Barry was talking about. And right now I'm sort of talking to myself because our dinner table is filled with talk of sport, you know, all the different things that that's going on in in my children's life. Take a night a week and, and do some research uh, make sure you're getting that arts and humanity lesson in with your kids because it, it couldn't be more important. Yeah, well said. The other thing you can talk about and what we're going to continue to talk about, how we get this movie made. Oh, absolutely. You know I'm going to keep digging. Barry kind of washed over my comment, but I'm going to I'm gonna bring it back up. I can't let it die. <laughs> we need to get in touch with Dolly. <laughs> absolutely. She'll, she'll make it happen. I got to get Barry's people with Dolly's people, and then I just see it happening. All through Appalachian Meets World. Hey, man, just thinking about it. Do you have anything this week for uh, Of Place? Yeah, I got a little bit about Of Place tonight, Neil. It's just going to be quick. But as Barry was talking, as he was going through his career, as he was going through his perspective, he was going through his understanding of the region and his writing of the short story, My Peoples, you know, he was talking about Dolly and he was talking about how she was going to participate, be part of My Peoples. She had already written a few songs in that regard. And, and speaking of that, the songs that you hear on here are two of the songs that were meant to be in My Peoples. The first one's by Ricky Skaggs, and the, the ending that you'll hear in a minute is by Dolly. And as you were talking, you know, I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I went to Dollywood. My first NFT purchased was of Dolly. But I remember when Dollywood was first getting started and I was growing up in Appalachia and I used to think this is just another another small time attraction in Appalachia that'll never last. It just won't be as exciting as other parks. But the fact of the matter is that I didn't understand it then. I have a better understanding of it now that Dollywood was not just this entertainment center, this entertainment park where people could go and have a good time. It was really Dolly giving back to her community Community. But not only that, focusing on the heritage of Appalachia, focusing on what's important about the people of Appalachia, what makes Appalachia Appalachia. It's just an incredible depiction of what Appalachia is all about. Dollywood was created with that in mind. It wasn't just created to make a profit or to profit off the people of Appalachia. It was made to give back to Appalachia, to celebrate Appalachia, to celebrate the traditions, the heritage. If you go there, the rides uh, celebrate that heritage. The food celebrates the heritage. The events celebrate the heritage. Everything that happens in Dollywood, the way it's set up, the names. uh, It's just an incredible example of one person. Obviously, Dolly's really successful, but wanting to make an impact on where she's from. And I just wanted to say that, you know, as Barry was talking, and anytime I think about Dolly, I always think about Dollywood, but not only Dollywood, but the impact that she makes on the place that she grew up on Appalachia and how important it is for people, even though they may leave the region, talk about expatalachians all the time, even though you leave the region, doesn't mean you have to forget about the region. Dolly left the region. Dolly became super successful, but she spends all her time giving back to the region, supporting the region, talking about the region, celebrating the region. It's important for her and it's important for a lot of people that leave the region to give back in any way they can. Just want to say that real quickly and just say, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't understand the nuances behind what makes Dollywood special. And as I've gotten older, 
just like as as we've talked about on this before, you know, sometimes it takes getting away to, to really appreciate where you're from. As I've gotten older, I've really appreciated what Dollywood is, what it stands for, and what it celebrates. Man, I appreciate your perspective there, Will. You always you always come through with the of place segment. I feel I always feel like I'm lagging behind, but that's why you're the big brother. So I guess Neil, we can end it like I usually do. Till next time. Peace. Now we don't know what heaven looks like, but we've seen enough hell right here and right now. But when the road is the roughest. And the problems are the toughest Or when the times are the hardest Or that old sky turns the darkest You gotta keep the faith Cause I believe there's a better day And those old blues Why, they're gonna just roll right on away I know they are Listen to me All this blue Ain't sky and sea some of that blues bound to get on me But the blues don't come to stay They'll move away on a better day Troubles and woes and misery Ain't gonna get the best of me Lift the shades, fix my gaze on a better day, clear the way. Better days just up ahead when sorrow ain't sleeping in my bed. When people ain't messing with my head, there's a better way. There's a brighter day. Oh, there's a better day with clearer sky. It's looking bright on a better day. Look away, look away.